know, I've actively learned things about the Father's heart through study and through Scripture, but more often than not, I've been passively enlightened through the adventures that my children create and, uh, and by my reactions to them. And um, such as, you know, Jane pinched her finger really badly this, this past week and, and the, the hinge of the door of the fridge and it split her, the pad of her finger open and kind of crushed her fingernail and there's blood under it. And it was really, she was in a lot of pain. And I got so angry at the fridge. <laughs> I would have taken a sledgehammer to that fridge if I had one in my hands in that moment. It was an inordinate emotional reaction to the pain of my child. And I mean, I, would, I, li- I, I didn't tell Ashley this, but I got online to see if anyone else's children had ever been pinched by this type of fridge before because I was going to launch an assault. <laughs> I was going to see if we could get a brand new fridge and get this death trap out of our house. A few things that I've I've learned uh, about myself, um, you know, from my kids is that um, I want my children to have no question in their mind whether or not they are loved by me. I don't want them to ever ponder if I, d- if I don't love them. I don't ever want them to have an opportunity where they're curious or uncertain or unassured of my love for them. I've also learned that I'm addicted to my children's happiness. I absolutely love to see them smile and laugh. And uh, I mentioned this to some of y'all before, but Charlotte, our youngest, she's four months old. She started smiling about a month ago. And it's like our house becomes like this joyful place when a new baby starts smiling. And it's kind of like it's partially selfish because, you know, for the first three months, they're just taking. And then finally they smile at you and you're like, oh, you actually acknowledge my existence and reciprocate love. Like, this is amazing. And then when you see your child smile, whatever you did to get that smile, you do it again. And if that doesn't bring the smile, then you try anything. You make, I mean, you'll see me as a grown man make the most ridiculous, like just trying to get a smile out of that baby um, because it's so addictive. I'm addicted to my children's happiness. And I hate with a fiery rage any pain that afflicts them. I would lay my life down for any of them with no consideration to the pain. And, um, and this, is a, this is a godly truth statement about myself. I am a good father, but I'm not the father. He's even better. And so our Father in heaven has a stronger desire that we be assured of his love for us, that we would have no question ever in our lives or be curious at any point whether or not he loves us. He is even more obsessed with our joy and our fulfillment in life 
then I'm obsessed with the joy of my, my children. In fact, in John 10.10, which was yesterday, 10.10, it says that uh, the enemy came to steal, kill, and destroy, but Jesus, he says, I've come that they would have life to the full or abundant life. I've come to give them an abundant life. He's obsessed with the abundance of our lives. And he has the purest, most powerful anger towards any affliction that causes us misery. He would have the same kind of reaction to the fridge that I had. (laughs) He would be so angry that something caused me, his son, pain. And he would lay down his life for us with no consideration of the pain that it would cause him. Um, some of, uh, we, we've grown up in all sorts of households. Some, uh, some of us have had delightful childhoods. Some of us have had nightmarish childhoods. Um, but I know this has been an experience for some people that I, I've talked to you throughout life, that, and it's that they believe that one of the parents likes them more than the other. Uh, it's kind of like, you know that your mom is your advocate. Your mom defends you against an impatient, verbally abusive father. And your mom, your mom steps in to defend you. And, and I know that's true. I've heard it from, from many people's lives. Um, but I feel like often in the church, we actually believe something similar about the relationship between our father and Jesus that Jesus is the one that likes us and restrains the angry hand of our Father from hitting us. And we have uh, this idea of the Trinity that sounds like this. Instead of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, it's the mean guy, the Son, and the Holy Bible. And if we get really edgy, it's the law, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And and the question I want to ask is, do we really believe... Bye, Charlotte, I love you. Do we really believe that the Father is good? That the Father is obsessed with our happiness and our joy? He's obsessed with us. Do we really believe that? We sang about uh, God's glory today, and we sing about God's glory almost every Sunday And when um, God wanted to demonstrate his glory to Moses, it says that the goodness of God passed before him. His glory and his goodness are inseparable. They're actually the same. You can't try to define his glory without it sounding like his goodness. And you can't try to define his goodness without it sounding like his glory. Any place that we're not seeing his goodness in our lives is where we have a lack of glory. And any place where we haven't been able to see how good he is will be the place where we got off track in our hearts. So there's the, there's the fall that happened, obviously, in, in, in Revelation uh, chapter 3. And we, 
throughout the years have um, come to this understanding that Eve, you broke my rules, and now I have bloodlust. I can't even look at you. Banished. Out. Get out. And it's this idea that God is so furious at us that he can't even look at us, and we're grounded for 4,000 years. <laughs> and then Jesus comes along and he is made in the likeness of sinful humanity although he didn't sin he was tempted in every way and that's something that I wanted to mention as a side note today Jesus was tempted in every way which is why he's a sympathetic high priest I mean every way Jesus was tempted to lust after women. Jesus was tempted to lust after men. Jesus was tempted to disobey the law. Jesus was tempted to rebel against his parents. He was tempted in every way so that at any way, in any way that we are tempted, he is able to be sympathetic and show that he went through it too. He had our human limitations. He actually gave up some of the privileges of deity in order to represent man, in order to reveal uh, man to man and to reveal God to man. He gave up actual privileges of his deity and he was found to be in the likeness of man. And he grew up like any other man. And we have this idea that, you know, he, he had a really a very original life, you know, marked with incredible miracles and, and moments of love. And, and he's this great dude that's doing awesome things left and right. And he knows that there's going to be this moment he's not looking forward to. It's going to be the worst thing ever that God, his father, is going to turn his back on him. And that the Trinity would like turn against itself. And we get to the the cross, and you hear Jesus shouting, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's in Matthew 27, 46, and Mark 15, 34. And what was happening in that moment is he was asking our question of God. He was echoing and representing our accusation towards the Father in that moment. He was stepping into our blindness towards the goodness of God. And we have, I mean, we sing songs about it all the time that, you know, heaven is looking away from Jesus. God turns his back on him. Here's the thing. John 10.30 says, I and the Father are one. Was this temporarily suspended on the cross? John 14.11, I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. John 6.46, from the Father, or I am from the Father and with the Father. John 16.32, he says to his disciples, you will all leave me alone, yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. 2 Corinthians 5.19, God was in Christ 
reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sins against them. John 8, 28 through 29, when you lift up the son of man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing of my own, but speak just what the father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. We've had this idea that God had to turn his back on Christ because God's unable to look at sin, right? That's because of our sin that we are straight up enemies of God, right? The verse that um, a lot of people use for that is Colossians 1.21. It says, once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds. In your minds. You were enemies of God in your minds. But now he's reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. But wasn't the father too pure to look on sin? You know, we have this idea, it's okay for Jesus to hang out with tax collectors, prostitutes, and thieves, but not the father because the father's holier than Jesus because somehow God in the flesh is less holy than God in the spirit. Scripture doesn't say that God can't look on evil. The verse where we find that uh, misinterpreted is Habakkuk 1.13. It says, Habakkuk is lamenting. He's pouring out his complaint before God, and he says, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate it. And then we stop there. But the, the verse isn't even over. The very next sentence, still part of that verse says, why then do you? See, this is not Habakkuk giving us a doctrinal dissertation. This was his complaint and his misunderstanding of the nature of God. It's a bunch of whys. And prophets, poets, and psalmists are notorious for complaining. <laughs> to this day. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and honestly, it's, it is a great thing to pour out your complaint to God because at least you're getting honest. But in this moment, Habakkuk is pouring out a complaint to God. He is not giving us a doctrinal understanding of what God can and can't look at. This is the exact same mis misunderstanding of, that Adam had of God's heart when he ran and hid, believing God to be angry. But Jeremy, wasn't there a separation that had to be dealt with? Yes, there was a separation. I, but Isaiah 59 actually says, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short, nor his ear too dull. But your sins have separated you. Your sins have hidden his face from you. Sin separated us from God. It did not separate God from us. Where are we going to run from a God who is everywhere? Where can I flee from your presence? Psalm 139. 
If I make my bed at the bottom of the sea, surely you're there. If I go to the heavens, you're there. To the depths, you're there. The east, the west. This is not just semantics. Guys, this is the difference between very good news and very bad news. The cross was not paying off an angry deity. Do you guys think that Jesus was twisting God's arm in order to get God to love us and accept us again? Was Jesus trying to change God's heart towards us? Was he presenting a condition by which we could finally be loved again? Or is the Father's love unconditional? Hebrews 10.22 says, Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with a full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. The blood, my friends, was for you. The early church never believed this horrible idea that Jesus' suffering and dying was to save us from God. They believed that Jesus was saving us from our sin and the effects that our sin had on us, causing us to believe foul things about ourselves and to harbor accusations towards God, which will separate us from ever having friendship with him. And I don't know how it entered the church, but we have this idea that Jesus is standing between us and a vindictive, vicious father. But Jesus is always representing the father perfectly. He and the father are one. There is no separation between the actions of Jesus and the actions of the father. There's no separation between the words of Jesus and the words of the father. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. What Jesus did is he stepped into the depths of our depravity, our shame, our anxiety, our alienation, our separation, our desperation, our rebellion, our twistedness, our corruption, my fear. And he took it all down into the grave and left it there and rebirthed us without any of it. And on the cross, Jesus was not changing God. He was changing you. Jesus doesn't free us from outside the prison. He's the kind of guy that gets in there with us to walk us out the doors himself. Has anybody ever wondered why God pouring out his wrath on man looks a lot like man pouring out his wrath on God? Because in that moment, the only thing that was going to work was God laying down his life while we throw all of our rage and wrath and anger and accusation at him. And we see God dying on a cross in the most horrible way. And his words, the last words of a dying God, pardon us of all of our sins. And he says, you don't know what you're doing. They didn't know. He's not a distant, aloof God. He is Jesus' father, and he is now our father. Jesus is the firstborn among many, 
brethren. Jesus himself said in John 10, 18, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. But I know some of you theologians are wondering right now, what about Isaiah 53? Wasn't the father pleased in the bruising of the son? Yes. Yes. The father was pleased in the bruising of the son because it meant the adoption of the nations. It meant your adoption. He also knew Jesus wasn't going to stay dead. (laughs) How could we actually call someone a good father that murders their son for the sake of someone else not understanding that their son's going to come back? Could you call him a good father at that point? I don't think so. So there's Jesus on the cross. He's shouting out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you know who he's quoting? David, Psalm 22. David actually is one of the most prophetic dudes ever to walk planet Earth, and he released so many of his prophecies through song. And in Psalm 22, David actually steps into the future, and he sees or hears or understands this moment when God's son would be suffering. And he's shouting, why have you forsaken me? And And in that moment, it portrays the father as a pretty mean dude. But in that moment, Jesus was actually echoing all of our questions towards God. David actually heard the the cry of humanity towards God. Our misunderstanding of God's heart and the feeling that we have been forsaken, but we know that he never leaves or forsakes us. But we feel it. There are moments when, when we're blinded and we actually believe that we're forsaken. We've believed that God has given up on us and he's not given up on us. Because that same psalm ends like this. He's not despised or scorned the sufferings of the afflicted. He's not hidden his face from him. But he's listened to his cry for help. He's not hidden his face from you. Psalm 34, 18 says he's close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The father never turns his back on anyone. The Father loves you. And the cross was not just some legal exchange. It was the ultimate expression of his love. Unless we were allowed to to vent all of our rage and wrath on him and hear him say those words from the cross, we would never be able to trust him as a good father. And he was willing to do it for us. See, the insanity of our mistrust towards God had to be broken. And that was the only way.
See, grace is actually an empowering virtue of God that comes through the realization that we are forgiven and will continually be forgiven. That no matter what, <laughs> no matter what vile thing we think is coming out of us, no matter what kind of demonic oppression we're manifesting on earth, he is going to be throwing even more love even more mercy, even more forgiveness. And the moment when we realize that he's not going to give up on this forgiving thing is the moment that we are broken of our mistrust of him and a grace comes into our life to empower us to live holy. That's Titus 2.11. It says, For the grace of God that leads to salvation has appeared to all men. And it trains us to say no to ungodliness. See, grace will actually empower us to choose love. And we'll be motivated to follow a God who is so merciful. We'll be motivated to follow a God who is so loving. And our fear of punishment will be completely done away with. We won't follow him out of a sense of duty or a desire for eternal rewards. We will follow him because we don't know how not to. He loved us first. He loved us when we were at our worst. See, Jesus is the kind of guy who loves to find the most brokenhearted because you'll never forget the moment when your heart was broken and a man put it back together. He likes to find you when you have nothing because you'll never forget the moment when you had nothing and he gave you everything. He likes to find you in the moment when you are least lovable because you'll never forget the moment when love was poured on you when you believed yourself to be least lovable. He actually looks for the brokenhearted and is drawn to the cries of the afflicted. He leaves the 99 for the one. That's our father. Not just Jesus. <laughs> That's our father. Let me, uh, let me pray for us. I believe what God is going to do today is uh, something that only the Holy Spirit can do by revelation and impartation, which is to give us a fresh, new, deeper, clearer understanding of the love of the Father. So why don't we stand and, and I'll pray for us. Y'all look like I should have thrown some more jokes into that sermon. <laughs> Did you hit Starbucks before getting here? <laughs> Jesus, we love you so much. Thank you for the demonstration of your love on the cross, and thank you for the continual demonstration of your love every day, every moment, every second of our lives. God, I ask right now that you would do something that only you can do, and through wisdom and revelation, give us a great understanding 
of the unconditional love of our Father that he never leaves, he never forsakes, and that Jesus is not restraining the angry hand of God from smiting us like a mosquito. Ask that the message of the Father would be released again and that a fatherless generation would be completely healed because the Father was revealed. In Jesus' name, amen.